Morning again, and um, blessing to uh, blessing to see you, and also to be able to bring the word of God and to expound the uh, the scriptures. Um, we're going to be in Romans, it seems, for a while, and uh, we're going to be in Romans chapter twelve for a while. Um, it's very different, isn't it, as we're going through this compared to all the doctrines that we had a look at in the earlier chapters of Romans. Here we're finding every verse just absolutely precious. Every verse seems to be bringing out something quite new and quite refreshing and also potentially very, very challenging. Uh, and no doubt this morning's verse that we're going to be looking at is going to be equally challenging. Um, it's, it's an incredible portion of scripture that we're going to be looking at so the title of the message today is simply blessing our persecutors blessing our persecutors and i'm sure that there'll be many things that you're going to be finding within this message this morning that will probably open your horizon to respect of persecution and persecutors and how that affects us and also our own dealing with it how do we deal with it how do we deal when things go against us in the way that it has done for many Christians in the past. Um, let's read just again, from just from verse 9, because this is a key introduction, especially these first five words, because with that it helps understand a, a bit about the rest of it. So Romans chapter 12, we'll just read from 9 to 14. Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love, in honour preferring one another. Not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer. Distributing to the necessity of saints, given to hospitality. Bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, dear Lord, in every way, dear Father, I make no pretense to be able to preach on my own accord or without your work. It's only you, dear Lord, that can bring your word, dear Father, into the hearts of those who have your spirit. This, dear Lord, authored by the spirit of the living God, can only be transferred into those hearts who have the spirit of the living God to be able to understand it. And I ask and I pray, dear Lord, that you would do so, that you would impact each one of us that are here, that are looking at the word of the Lord including, dear Father, its preacher. I pray, dear Father, you will convict our hearts, convict us, dear Lord, of our own sin, but also, dear Lord, that you would awaken us to the wonderful joy that there is in the living God and in obeying and trusting in the truth of Scripture. We thank you for this time and we ask your blessing upon it in Jesus' name. Amen. Four elements that we're going to be looking at again. We bless our persecutors because it is commanded, is number one. We bless our persecutors because Christ blessed us. We bless our persecutors because it represents Christ. And we bless our persecutors because it blesses us. His words were the precursor of the Second World War. That's astounding because they motivated his generals to act to invade Poland. But not only this, his words also justified the command to kill every man, woman and child of the Roman Catholic Polish population. 
Who, after all, speaks today of the annihilation of the Armenians? Adolf Hitler brought back into the memory of the generals a state-sanctioned genocide of the Christian Armenians that began in 1843 and concluded in the horrific slaughter of 1915. In feigned preparation for the mobilisation of their military during the First World War, they had determined for themselves a question that they were asking, and that was the desire of the extermination of the Christian Armenians. This is the Ottoman Empire under the Turks. Through conscription, they employed and demanded every man between the ages of 18 to 60 front up for the military service. These men would be unarmed and they would remain unarmed. They were to serve as labourers for the military. And in the guise of the First World War, 800,000 of them were slaughtered by the Turkish rulers themselves under the state. Approximately 200,000 Armenian Christians were said to have converted to Islam and were thereby permitted to live. And this alone testifies that the slaughter of the Christians was motivated by a hatred for Christ. Anybody who actually helped the, the Armenians in any way were also summarily executed. It didn't begin this way, however. The Ottoman Empire and the Ottoman state began at the end of the 13th century in 1299. They took large portions of southeastern Europe, Western Asia and North America, or North Africa, sorry. At that time, Christians were tolerated. But then came the jizya. The jizya is a tax on all non-Muslims. In effect, it was a protection racket, no different from what the mafia employed since then. Matter of fact, they probably got the idea from there. It was a tax basically saying, if you pay this tax, we will protect you from harm by us. Persecution comes in many forms. The world has largely forgotten the Armenian genocide, even as the bloody conflict against the Armenians of Azerbaijan rose again to the fore just last year. My hope is that the sermon today is going to help answer the state of our heart, even in light of the most extreme forms of persecution. And this is indeed one of the most extreme forms of persecution. We can't think of anything more extreme than this. Bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. We bless our persecutors because fundamentally it's commanded. It is commanded. Paul gives here a command to bless those who persecute you. He speaks about this completely in line of verse 9. This is a picture of love without dissimulation. This is an evident picture of love without hypocrisy. We bless and curse not those who persecute us. Paul's desire that love is attended to here with perfect consistency. And this is certainly one element of it. And from the list of verse 9 to 18, possibly the most, this particular verse is possibly the most contrary to our nature. It's hard to actually look at all those different ones that are in there. We can agree with almost all of them, pretty much with all, all of them. 
But there's something about blessing those who persecute us that's contrary to how you'd normally think and how we would normally think. It's not natural to bless your persecutors, quite to the contrary. There's a natural tendency for all of us to fight fire with fire. Those who treat us with spite, we return the favour in kind. And that's the natural tendency of us all. And we use that as an excuse, don't we? We return the favour in kind. I want you to consider this, especially in light of the last 12 months. Those who take from us our freedom to speak, it is natural for us to desire that they were silenced. Those who would take away our freedoms, we would like to see imprisoned. Those we see having the power to infringe upon our human rights, we would wish and could wish that they didn't even exist. We'd already murdered them within our hearts. We do good to them who do good to us and we naturally desire to return evil in kind. Let me ask you a question. Any elements of that that you could recognise within yourself over the last 12 months? seems that this command is even more challenging. The verse before speaks so much of distributing to the necessity of saints and to be given to hospitality. This sort of steps up and amps up the ante a little bit to be able to bless our persecutors. Yet it was the Lord Jesus Christ who commanded this. It was Jesus who actually illustrated this so clearly. Turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. Paul doesn't come up with this command of his own. He brings it out of Jesus' direct teaching in the Scriptures. Matthew chapter 5, we'll just read from verse 38. It's interesting about this because Jesus is bringing something seems to be almost new to the ears of those who are listening. He he speaks about the things that they have heard in the past, but now he says something completely different to this. Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. You have heard that it has been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that you resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbour and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. 
Let me ask you the question, what distinction is there between you and everyone else if all you do is love those who love you? Is there a difference between you and anybody else? Is there a difference between you if you curse those who curse you? Is there a difference between you and everybody else if those who persecute you, you would not bless but rather curse? It's a good question to ask. I mean, it just runs on from there. I mean, I think of this last year and I sort of asked myself the question, you know, have you desired to silence those who would take away your freedom to speak? <laughs> good question. Would you love to have seen in prison those who would take away your freedom? You know, could you have wished that they didn't exist who had the power to disannul your own rights, so-called human rights? Is this love without dissimulation? Is this the love that is without hypocrisy? Is this a picture of one who would be at peace in blessing his persecutors? I would say not. I would say not. And I'm not sure if there would be any hand that would remain in their lap if I asked you if you did not do any of this during the last 12 months, mine included. We are commanded otherwise, beloved. Just in case you missed it, turn forward in your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. <coughs> Luke chapter 6. There's two verses there. We'll have a look at verse 27 and 28. <coughs> verse 27, Luke chapter 6, verse 27. But I say unto you which hear, love your enemies. Do good to them which hate you. Bless them that curse you and pray for them which despitefully use you. Why? Why would we do such a thing as this? Why would we even consider doing such a thing as this? Is Jesus giving us a raw deal again? You know, I don't think he is. I think Jesus thinks about the eternal significance of these things. And it's a good question. How many Christians think that the commands of Christ are actually a raw deal? Something that we can take or leave? No, they're not something that we can take or leave. They are something that we are to accept as absolutely true and for our good. What we don't seem to recognise a lot of the time is that we find ourselves living here in the now and we tend to want to naturally have all the blessings of the here and the now. But we're not thinking about the hereafter. We're not thinking about eternity. We don't have eternity in view a lot of the time. But God does. Jesus does. He doesn't think about your temporal comforts. He thinks about your eternal comforts. But not only yours, theirs. Theirs. The persecutors themselves. He thinks about them, you see, because he loves them. How can he love those persecutors? How can he love those that do these things? Well, Luke's, Luke 6.35, he says, But love ye your enemies and do good and lend, hoping for nothing again, and your reward shall be great. And ye shall be the children of the highest, for he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil so there's a purpose for it there's an eternal reward there's something that is gained by blessing those who persecute you 
But also notice what he says. He says that ye shall be the children of the highest. This is a picture of Christ. This is a picture of, of God the Father. And we'll go into why this is the, the state of it. But I want you to recognize something that when we demonstrate Christ in the world by blessing our persecutors, we are revealing him. We are revealing the Lord. We are showing to the world this is Christ. This is God. This is the one who loves you. We're showing the complete nature of the Lord to those who would spitefully use us and persecute us. But this can't be done if we are being conformed to the world. It can't be done if we're being conformed to the world. And you'll see a picture of yourself being conformed to the world the more upset you are that the world is turning inside out and upside down. You demonstrate to yourself, and I demonstrate to myself, that I have more hope of here than I have of heaven. I praise the Lord that that's beginning to change even in my own heart. Romans 12, verses 2 and 3, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Notice something with that verse. Notice that it is a progressive state. So those of you who have in every way cursed your persecutors in the last 12 months, you can know with a certainty that being transformed to Christ is a process. It doesn't necessarily tell us that we don't know the Lord at that particular time. It's not, it's not saying that we're not Christian because we don't bless our persecutors. But it's speaking about there's a conformity to the world and there is a transformity that needs to be enacted within our lives. And we need to move the one from the one to the other that we might have joy. It's our natural tendencies to reward evil in kind. But Romans 12.21 speaks of the only way evil can ever be overcome. And what is it? Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. See, Paul didn't just write these things because he just believed them in his head. He, he believed them because Jesus actually spoke about it, that Jesus actually gave his life on a cross for those who were his enemies, and we'll touch on that in a moment. He recognised Jesus gave his life for exactly that purpose. Therefore, Paul lived it. He lived it. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. If you were in Romans, go forward one book to Corinthians. If you're still in Luke, keep moving forward. Acts, Romans, Corinthians. Corinthians chapter 4 is what we're looking for. As Paul gives a bit of a testimony with regards to his life to the Corinthian church. Corinthian church is not unlike the churches of the world today. It's a fairly uh, metropolitan sort of church, very contemporary with today in many ways. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 9. Paul writes, For I think that God hath set forth us, the apostles, last, as it were, appointed to death. For we are made a spectacle unto the world, and to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but ye are wise in Christ. We are weak, but ye are strong. Ye are honourable, but we are despised. Even unto this present hour we both hunger and thirst and are naked and are buffeted and have no certain dwelling place and labour working with our own hands. Being reviled, we bless. 
Being persecuted, we suffer it. Being defamed, we entreat. We are made as the filth of the world and are the offscoring of all things unto this day. Now he writes to you and me. Right? Now he writes to you and I. First Thessalonians, move forward. Past Ephesians, Philippians. First Thessalonians chapter 5. First Thessalonians five and verse fourteen. Just a couple of verses we'll have a look at there. Paul here writing to the Thessalonian church, encouraging them because of their own persecutions that they had already suffered and endured. And have a look what he writes to them as they are going through persecution. He says now in verse 14, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men, see that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men, rejoice evermore. Rejoice evermore. What a wonderful blessing that is. There's a purpose to these commands and these evident commands that we have within the scriptures with regards to those who persecute us. Titus 2, 7 to 8, he says this, In all things, showing thyself a pattern of good works. In doctrine, showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech, that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. There is a joy when the persecutors have no evil thing to say of you, but only and only if we bless and curse not. We bless our persecutors because Christ blessed us. This gives us now the reason on why we do so. We have the command in the scripture. Recognise that everything before that command are the doctrines. We still have the doctrines. We've got the doctrine of Christ and the doctrine of why he came and why he died and we see that wonderful picture in the word of God we read the passage in the gospel of John that speaks of God so loving the world remember that passage that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life we see John 3.16 on placards in stadiums uh, we, we, we see it as probably the most often quoted passage in the world, John 3.16. It's a strange idea, however, because John 3.16 has been quoted so often that it's actually become more of a platitude these days than it is profound. We don't think of it as profound as we need to be thinking about it. And when the Bible says that God so loved the world, the world seems to respond thinking that it's somehow deserving of God's love, you know, rather than amazed that God would love them. You know, God says, I love you, and you respond, yeah, so you should. Funny, isn't it? Because I could almost guarantee most of the people in the world don't think that that's an amazing idea, that God would actually love them. They think that they're actually deserving of God's love. Yeah, there's something about me that God likes. Hey, God loves you. Yeah, well, he made me, the Bible says, so he made me just as I am. And I do what I do because God made me this way, you know. So, yeah, so you should love me, you know. Mum and dad love me, you know. 
They don't like me much sometimes, but they love me. You know? So yeah, that's fair enough. Yeah, so we should. I wonder what it would be like if people actually awoke up and realised that they were actually the enemies of God. I wonder if then their, their, their thoughts of this being a platitude would actually become a little bit more profound, that they would be considering it a little bit more deeply. If the world truly understand that their sin has so separated them from God that between them and God is an unscalable chasm containing the hottest flames of hell in which all those who are unredeemed, unreconciled to God shall one day descend at death for all eternity, would they think a little bit differently? I wonder. Luke 16 tells about the rich man who when he was buried and in hell he lift up his eyes being in torment. It's interesting that throughout the passage of that in Luke chapter 16, there's no indication, there's no hint that the man was surprised to be there. In fact, it seems pretty evident that in his eternal state, his conscience was fully informed. I'm not sure about your conscience. I'm not sure if you've done things within your life that you've sort of put away, that you've hidden, that you've tucked behind you, that you've made sure that you don't have any guilt about the things that you've done. I'm not sure if you understand the whole avenue of psychology and what it's there for, what its purpose is, that they speak about your guilt and your shame and the things that you're responsible for that you can't deal with, you see, but it has a, an effect upon your life. It has ramifications within you. It, helps, it, it turns you making decisions that are poor decisions, so they have you to just stick it in a box and lock it up with a key and hide it somewhere in the deepest recesses of your mind so you won't remember them or recall them, therefore you can live free. But that's not the conscience that the rich man discovered when he looked up. His conscience was fully informed. He recognised he was there and he deserved to be there. There's no complaint. He speaks about, you know, Lazarus in Abraham's bosom. Remember that? And he's there and he's there all alone. And not one sentence was come by him to say, can you bring some friends to me that I may have company? No, no. I have brethren and they need to know that they don't come into this place he didn't even want their company i wonder if when the dull consciences of the people of the world is fully informed that they would recognize that they were the enemies of christ and the idea of god so loving the world is more profound than they can possibly even begin to imagine what if they understood that they were enemies loved to an extent that they could simply not comprehend. Romans chapter 5, 10. Worth turning there. Turning there. Turn there with me. Romans chapter 5, verse 10. Romans chapter 5 begins with that incredible word, therefore. It's an incredible word. I love where it's placed. I preached a whole sermon on that one word once and it is incredible placement because here we have reconciliation now to God. But he writes in verse 10, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled we shall be saved by his life. This is the love wherewith we are to emulate when it comes to our persecutors, 
This is the love of Christ that reconciled us as enemies to himself. And we are commanded to reproduce this same love when we bless our persecutors. He'd, he'd, already, um, he'd already endured a sleepless night this, this night. Uh, he endured several kangaroo courts going between one place and then another. And he endured the severity of the Roman scourge. Uh, a scourge that tore his flesh to such an extent that the Bible refers to the people being astonished because his appearance was so marred more than any man in Isaiah chapter 52 verse 14. They tore his beard from his face and then commanded he take upon himself the instrument of his own execution. He carried the cross. He carried the cross so far, only so far because he was physically spent and then Simon of Cyrene was compelled to bear the cross after Jesus and Jesus walked ahead of him. He hadn't done anything wrong. Uh, the Bible said that he was as a sheep led to the slaughter. He came only to seek and to save that which was lost. John chapter 1 verse 10 says that he was in the world and the world was made by him and the world knew him not. He came unto his own and his own received him not. The very people he came to save from their sin charged Christ. The very people that he came to save from their sin, charged Christ with a capital crime for confessing who he was. Think about that for a second. The Romans drove a large and broad metal spike between the tight carpal bones of the wrist, creating a level of pain that is impossible to describe. It was this placement that would be both efficient and effective in holding a man to the cross. The last spike was the large form that was driven through the front of the foot joint through the heel into the vertical member of the cross. We know that this is true because they've actually found archaeological evidence of, of all of that. They've, they've found where the nails actually go in to the wrist. There's a place on the inside here. You've got the two bones that actually join these carpal bones. There's about eight of them there. And they're all tight, really tight together. You know, the word we have, excruciating pain. Well, that word is a Latin word. It actually means of the cross or off the cross, from the cross. The very word that we use to describe the most, the most difficult of all pains is actually described of the Lord Jesus Christ on that cross and what they did with respect to putting him there. And I can't even begin to imagine what it would be like hanging there that way. Luke chapter 23, verse 34, Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. When the Lord was on the cross, he prayed that the Father would forgive his persecutors and his murderers, his enemies. And by this very term, you and I were referred to. This is the love through which you and I have been reconciled. 
And we sometimes think to ourselves with regards to emulating Christ, this is the fashion in which we are to emulate him. We are to, we are to, to imitate the Lord Jesus Christ in loving our enemies. No, this isn't the norm. This isn't how we normally think. This isn't how we normally feel. Yet this is exactly what we are called to do. This is love without hypocrisy. This is love that is not conditional. This is love that is not a love given because people love us. It's a love given because Christ loved us. This is a love given because God so loved the world. We like to think that um, maybe, maybe it doesn't apply to us. You know, maybe it was just, just applies to Jesus. Yeah, we get stuck, though, because then we come to Stephen. Acts chapter 7. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. That's in the book of Acts, chapter 7, verses 59 to 60. You remember Stephen? He's one of the deacons of the church, one of the first deacons of the church. And he laid out the complete account of the, of the history of the Jews and all the grace that was shown to them time and time and time and time again. And it's an incredible account, you know, and you need to read it. It's almost like the Old Testament in miniature, you know, all in this one chapter. And he speaks about it all. And then he speaks about them and he says, you blind, blind people, you know, who of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? You know, and then they gnashed on him with their teeth, the text says, and they stoned him to death. This is the love for those who would even sin against their own souls. This is that love. This is blessing those who persecute you. Who persecute you. Turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2. And have a look at why we are called to do so. Have a look why it is, just in case you were wondering, we are to follow the Lord as an example. 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 21. Does everybody you're always curious about what their calling is? Get excited about what your calling is. Well, what's my calling, Lord? It's here. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow in his steps who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. And when he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. Third point this morning. We bless our persecutors because it represents Christ. It represents Christ. We follow in the steps of Christ. We see this, we see this in uh, in Peter, that he speaks about us being an example. Um, it speaks about us here representing the Lord Jesus Christ, that our focus is not on our own comforts, that our focus is not on our own lives, that our focus is of Christ and why he came. This is what our focus is. 
Now, no doubt in today's contemporary churches there are a lot of people who hear a sermon like this and they might even be incensed by it. Like, no, 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 I thought, I thought becoming a Christian was about having our best life now. You know, it's really incredible. Think about that. Each one of us know that that is doctrinally flawed and doctrinally wrong. Each one of us. Now, I want you to think about this because I want to convict your own hearts at this time. Each one of you believe that that doctrine is flawed. Am I right? It's complete. You don't have your best life now. Yet in the last 12 months, each one of us have been so upset about the current conditions going on in the world that we've been really upset like children with a toy taken away from us because we want our best life now. I just wonder if the last 12 months has actually betrayed our hearts. And I truly believe it has in very many ways. And each one of us should be ashamed at one level or another. We really do. And we really need to get back online with regards to what we are here for. We are not here to live our best life now. This world is not about us. This life is not about us. This life is about everybody else who doesn't know Christ and doesn't have the freedom that we already have. Now, I've finished my rant. Let me go back to being nice, gentle Pastor Eddie. It's true though, you know. We've taken the regulations that have come upon us personally. We've taken them personally. Rather than bless our persecutors, we've cursed them. And I know that I'm not the only pastor that has done this. And I'm sure that you're not the only Christian who has disobeyed this command of our Lord. We haven't represented Christ. We haven't done so at all. We've behaved like children. You know, the, the, the sadder part about this is that we've behaved this way even though we ourselves have not been singled out. Everybody's in this. We haven't been singled out. We haven't been singled out as Christians being persecuted. It hasn't been just the church that has had to shut its doors. And yet we find ourselves still cursing those who have been making these, these calls. If this is how we are when all people are treated with equal disdain by their governments, how will we be when it is only those who would live godly in Christ Jesus? How will we be if an Armenian effort comes our way? Think about it. We have cursed our enemies rather than blessed them. Our hatred for those who have the rule over us bears witness to the truth of it. We have been unrighteous in wishing evil against our governments and not lived by faith in the matter. And we must repent. We do need to repent. We need to repent if we are ever going to learn to attend faithfully to the examples of Christ, beloved. We can't live for Christ if we still have the mindset that our best life is now. Job 31. If I rejoiced at the destruction of him that hated me, or lifted up myself when evil found him, neither have I suffered my mouth to sin by wishing a curse to his soul. Now, this isn't just a new doctrine, beloved. 
This isn't new. This is as old as the book of Job. Turn your Bibles to Psalm 35. Psalm 35, middle of your book, middle of your Bible. Psalm 35, and listen to David's own words, the king. Listen to what he wrote, what he believed in his heart. Psalm 35. We'll have a look at verse 11 to 14. Psalm 35, verse 11. False witnesses did rise up. They laid to my charge things that I knew not. They rewarded me evil for good to the spoiling of my soul. But as for me... When they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled my soul with fasting and my prayer returned unto my own bosom. I behaved myself as though he had been my friend or brother. I bowed down heavily as one that mourneth for his mother. Do you get that? Do you get the heart of David here? Is this a heart that would reward evil for evil? Is it? Do you see any hint of that in there? Here you have people who are charging him falsely, that are charging him as an enemy, things that he didn't even know about, things that he wasn't even aware of. He's been charged by them. He's being persecuted. Yet, yet, he says here that he would put on sackcloth, he would mourn and he would fast for them, that they would be healed, that they would be bettered. Imagine that. This is praying for your enemies. That's what that means. This is praying that they would be good, that they would be okay, that they would be healed. What, healed to persecute me further? Yes, if need be. Why? Because my hope is in heaven, not here. My reward is in heaven. You remember when he left Jerusalem, his own son came against him. And he had to leave Jerusalem. And then there was that man who would curse him and throw stones at him as he went. And, he, and, he said, and they said, Lord, should we smite him? Should we take off his head? And he says, no, if the Lord had told him to, 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 to curse me, let him curse. Maybe the Lord will look upon it and reward me. Was his focus on the here and now? Should he have not been absolutely fuming at the disrespect that he received? It was pretty disrespectful to be cursing your king that way. You know, I deserve better than that. You know, call me by my title, I'm king. You can't can't curse me like that. Proverbs 17.5 says, He that is glad of calamities shall not be unpunished. We need to think about that. Proverbs 24.17-18. You're not far. Turn there. Turn there. Proverbs 24.17-18. Listen to the, the mind of God on the matter. Because one of the things that we want to recognise is this is how we represent God. This is the nature of God. Proverbs 24, verse 17. Rejoice not when thine enemy falleth, and let not thine heart be glad when he stumbleth, lest the Lord see it, and it displease him, and he turn away his wrath, from him. I just want you to think about that for a moment. All right. Again, I don't know how many of you rejoice 
when you see somebody that you dislike fall into some sort of trouble. I don't know how many of you turn on your phones and look at a character over there and go, oh, look what happened to that person. Beloved, you displease the Lord with doing so, he might end up blessing that person. <laughs> might take away his wrath from that person if it pleases you so much. Recognize something really interesting there? You do not demonstrate the character of Christ when you wish evil against your enemy. When you're happy at their fall. When you rejoice at their calamity. That is not the nature of God. Now, I want to tell you something. This isn't something that you should evidence to the outside, nor is this something that you should have on the inside. If your heart convicts you with regards to this, that is the time to repent and come before the Lord because he has forgiven you of so much more. He has forgiven you of so much more. Proverbs 25, 21. Again, it's represented there in, in Romans. If thine enemy hunger, give him bread to eat. And if he be thirsty, give him water to drink. For thou shalt heap coals of fire upon his head, and the Lord shall reward thee. We are called to love our enemies and to bless our persecutors. This is the nature of Christ. And we are called to live godly in Christ Jesus. And in so doing so that there is a law that follows. There's a law that follows. Did you know that there's a law that follows? If you are living godly in Christ Jesus, there's a law that follows immediately after it. Turn to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3. In the New Testaments, you were in Thessalonians before, it's after that. 2 Timothy. And I know that it's only one verse, but it's worth turning to because it's worth also committing to memory and gives you joy in the future. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and have a look at verse 12. Timothy's a, uh, a pastor that has been set over the church of Ephesus. A young man, probably in his 40s. I can say that now because I'm a bit older than 40. 2 Timothy 3.12, yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Is there any obscurity in the text? No. There's no, there's no if there. There's no maybe all that would live godly in Christ Jesus might suffer persecution. Um, it simply says shall suffer persecution. It's an absolute here. All that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Now, if that is true, and if persecution is an evident token of Christ, and if persecution is an evident token that you are living for Christ, how many times have you guys been persecuted? Maybe not often enough. What are you talking about with regards to this? You know, I mean... Is this something that we've got to welcome? Should we be welcoming persecution? Well, if you've been living godly in Christ Jesus and persecution is an evident testimony of you living godly in Christ Jesus, then perhaps yes. But let me, let me answer that question with another question. 
Is, it, is persecution an opportunity for you to reveal Christ? Yes, it is. What about another question? Is it the eternal or temporal that you're focusing on when you don't desire persecution? We're focusing on the temporal, not the eternal. Um, do we desire the earthly or the heavenly treasure? We should be desiring the heavenly treasure. It's good to welcome persecution on at least four fronts. Number one, it's a blessing. Uh, it blesses those who, blessing those who persecutes us testifies of Christ. Number two, persecution evidences that we are living godly in Christ. Three, persecution for living godly in Christ Jesus proves that the Bible is true and therefore increases our faith. And four, the increase of our faith makes us happy. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14. But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. Be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. Remember the freedom that you and I have inherited. We've had a wonderful inheritance of this freedom. And if persecution comes our way, we look at it as an opportunity to share Christ. The character of Christ, the nature of Christ. The gospel then has this ability to be able to actually work through our lives. We become a physical living witness of Christ to our persecutors. How long will it take? I don't know. It doesn't really matter. You know, it doesn't really matter. To what end will they, will they just fall down and say, you're so godly, you know, and I won't persecute you anymore? Not necessarily. It might cost you your life. But that's not the extent. It's not limited in the scriptures. Last point this morning. We bless our persecutors because it blesses us. We need to consider what it is when we bless those that persecute us that we're doing the will of God. We, we are doing that which is contrary to our nature, but it is not contrary to the nature of Christ. Matter of fact, it is perfectly in line with the nature of Christ. We bless those who persecute us because we are living Christ. Remember what Paul spoke about. He said that to live is Christ and to die is gain. You know, we gain eternity in heaven. Our reward is then sealed and it is ours when in heaven. But to live is Christ and we are to live Christ while on earth. There has to be this one hope, this one joy in our lives that every moment of our lives is a greater opportunity for reward in heaven but also a greater opportunity for that others may attain to it. So it might take all of your life, you might even die at the hands of your persecutors, but the word of God emanated through your life will continue doing its work within that soul. It'll either confirm them to damnation or it may transform them to Christ. We have no idea. Remember, the scope that the Lord's looking at is an eternal one, not a temporal one. Matthew 5.11 Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. This is a blessing that we should look forward to. This is a blessing that we should rejoice in. Are we accounted worthy of personal persecution? I'd love to be counted worthy of personal persecution. You know what? I don't want to be in trouble because I've done something wrong. I would rather be persecuted. 
I don't want to be rebuked for my sin. I would rather be rebuked because I follow Christ. I'd rather be told something with regards to my evident demonstration of the Lord to people rather than being convicted of my own sin. Peter and the apostles were persecuted for preaching Christ. They were beaten by the high priest's soldiers and for this, they were, after this, they were then set free. Yet the passage in the book of Acts has them respond this way. Acts chapter 5, 41, And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. We need to be asking the question with regards to this. We want to be counted worthy for suffering shame for his name. But if we can't even endure the difficulties in this world because, you know, government overstep their rule, whether they do or they don't, is really irrelevant. The important thing is that we want to be able to suffer for righteousness sake and bless our persecutors. There is a great joy that you will attain to when you are not troubled due to your sin, but you are troubled because of your faith in Christ. Matter of fact, you will even leap for joy, the Bible says. Turn your Bibles to Luke Chapter 6, you were sort of there before and I stopped short. This is Jesus speaking, so if you've got a problem with this, you can ask our Lord, but I know it is true. Luke chapter 6, the Lord refers to us as blessed in verse 22. Luke 6 verse 22. Blessed are ye when men hate you and when they shall separate you from their company and shall reproach you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice ye in that day and leap for joy for behold your reward is great in heaven for in the like manner did their fathers unto the prophets. This is the wonderful joy that we have. This is what we have to look for. Can you see something here that's really interesting? This is the amazing thing about knowing Christ and being saved. When the Bible says all things work together for good to them that love God, it's literally all things. It's all things. Our persecution works together for good because we love God. We are persecuted for righteousness sake. We are works together for good they kill us and we find ourselves in heaven with the lord to live is christ but to die is gain you know there's no part of our lives that is limited there is no part of our lives that needs to be not blessed we can completely be blessed continually because we're living for christ peter writes this in first peter chapter 3 he says not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing but contrarywise blessing knowing that Ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. In chapter 3, verse 14, he says, But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. A chapter later, same verse, 1 Peter 4, 14. We had 1 Peter 3, 14, now 1 Peter 4, 14. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. For the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. 
On their part, he is evil spoken of, but on your part, he is glorified. It is incredible to live as a Christian. There is nothing that can come against you. Nothing that can come against you with, without your permission. You know, We can bless those who persecute us and we can know that whether here or there, we have a reward. We have a reward before the Lord. Last passage we'll turn to. This is incredible joy in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. question that you're going to be wanting to answer is if you're going to be tested on this doctrine. You want to be living godly in Christ Jesus. Living godly in the Lord. And if you do so, I've got no doubt that we are all going to be tested. Will I come forth as gold? That is the only question, and I hope you all do. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. I was looking at verse 3. My apologies. If I can be wrong on something like that, you should be testing me on everything. Second right. Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3. Giving no offence in anything, that the ministry be not blamed, but in all things approving ourselves as the ministers of God, in much patience, in afflictions, in necessities, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labours, in watchings, in fastings, by pureness, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Ghost, by love unfeigned, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armour of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, by honour and dishonour, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold we live, as chastened and not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. This is the curious state of the Christian. This is the curious state of those who know Christ and have a knowledge that eternity is their home and there is reward to those that are blessed by the Lord. You can have comfort and peace and all you need to do is say, Lord, I'm going to trust you in this matter. I'm going to rest in you in this matter and I'm going to bless these individuals. I'm not called to hate anybody. I'm called to love even my own enemies, just as you did. I was the enemy of Christ He died for me. He put himself on a cross for my sake when I didn't even know him. I was an enemy of his. Therefore, we live the same way for the Lord. And joy fills our heart. We leap for joy. We rejoice no matter what goes on. We look at the world and we think of itself and and we look at it and we just... Pity now comes to my heart. Pity because so many people are living in fear. Pity because so many people aren't rejoicing in the Lord. They don't have the Lord as their hope. They have this present world as their hope. And I am sorrowful for them. I'm sad for them. But as the days roll on, we are seeing the word of God come to life more and more and more. Should now be the time for you all to look at living godly in Christ Jesus, blessing our persecutors, having the comfort of Christ, irrespective of the direction the world is going to, 
Do you know Christ? Have you first admitted that you are a sinner before a holy God? Do you believe that Jesus Christ died on that cross for your sins? That through his blood your sins are washed away? Have you called upon his name that he might save you? If you have, if you do, if you see Christ and you recognize your own sin, that this is a joy that I'm speaking of here that you can attain to also and have and rejoice in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, dear Lord, for your word. I pray, dear God, that in every way we might be convicted by it and through it, and also, dear Father, that it be expounded to us more and more, that in every way we might live the way that you would desire us to live, and that we can, no matter what goes on in this world, live joyfully in Christ. I pray, dear Lord, that as you challenge us with this doctrine, that you would help us to reset our own minds and our own hearts, and that in every way, Lord, we can rejoice in you, and that we can shine the light of Christ into this world. These are the doctrines that we find within the word. And I pray, dear Lord, that you would help us to live them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.